0: Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration, as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. David Beck a renowned colorectal surgeon and U.S. Air Force veteran who currently is a professor of clinical surgery at Vanderbilt University in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Beck delivered the Epcarian lecture during Clinical Congress 2022 on the benefits of applying critical thinking toward each component of care to help advance workflow efficiencies and improve patient outcomes. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program.
1: It's certainly a pleasure to be here. Uh, I picked this topic because as surgeons, uh, we have to manage patients before and after the operation. And in many occasions, that care before and after may be sometimes more important than the surgery itself. So I hope this will have some wide applicability. I have no disclosures. I am remiss if not uh, reinforcing some of Eric's comments about Dr. He He's a master surgeon. He was the first full professor of surgery colorectal surgery at an academic institution, and he certainly had a major impact on our specialty, all the trainees he's dealt with, and his colleagues. Most of us consider him a friend and a mentor, Uh, and he certainly strives. His role model is kind of an inspiration for all of us. Unfortunately, as he said, he can't be here today, but I talked to him a couple weeks ago, uh, and he was kind enough to kind of give us some good comments. If you look at the definition of critical thinking, it's the objective analysis, available facts, evidence, and observations to form a judgment. Um, and I'll highlight the fact that it's available facts and evidence. Uh, sometimes the evidence may change. Uh, we always remind that we're dealing with biologic systems, which are very complex. Uh, and so sometimes we don't understand all the implications of how we're studying things. And as you'll see in some of the studies I'm going to quote, Uh, we occasionally pick the wrong endpoint and and get an answer that may not make sense. I always try to keep in mind in my trainees that today's pearl may be tomorrow's fecalith. What we know as a, quote, fact today uh, may may change as as we get more evidence and more experience. If you look at the uh, perioperative area, it's very stressful for patients. Uh, There's a whole host of factors that are involved, and as people have tried to Reduce the stress and improve preoperative care. A whole bunch of factors can be uh, applied to the patient and and the situation uh, to make things better. Uh, Many of these have been kind of put together in enhanced recovery or care paths. Uh, If if you look at the course of patients, you can easily divide into three categories uh, the preoperative time, interoperative actions, and then the postoperative period. We'll go through some of these things. Other people, have taken this three-position model and then kind of divided it into five things. Uh, they break up the preoperative care into two areas, and this is somewhat based on who's doing the actions. Uh, some of the pre-op things, such as education and planning and informed consent, can be not done by other people in your office. Uh, there's a perioperative thing where you have to assess patients for risk reduction, uh, continue education, and do some activities there. Interoperably is mostly surgeons and anesthesia. Uh, The post-op period, again, there's some time in the hospital where your team is caring for the patient, and then after discharge uh, where things happen to the patients. And so some of these activities go over several areas, such as uh, multimodal anesthesia. There's some areas to start in preoperative area, interop, and then post-op. And so all these things tend to have an effect. If you look at proper management, there's been significant changes over time. As many of us who've been in practice for of years knows, we did things as an intern that we certainly wouldn't do now. Uh, our change is somewhat based on training and experience. As I said, many of these activities are put together in care pass or enhanced uh, recovery uh, and is somewhat based on reported experience. Uh, there are case series. Very few randomized controlled trials, and some of those have endpoints that are easy to measure but may not be applicable. People have tried to put these different randomized trials into meta-analysis, but what's challenging is that we tend to throw our thought of things at the wall and see what works, and we're not sure which of those components is really critical, uh, unnecessary, or or maybe interact with something else, and so uh, it's been challenging. There are a few prospective trials which we'll mention, but we really don't have a good handle on what the average surgeon is doing. Uh, we all know what we do at our institution, we know we talk to our colleagues, see what they're doing, but there's not a lot of good evidence about what everybody's doing, how many of these things have been adapted, a wide range. And so we make recommendations based on the data that we have. Uh, societies such as the American Society of Colonial Medical Surgeons have put out some practice guidelines which we'll mention. Uh, many of these guidelines, they'll give you an idea how strong the recommendation is, strong to weak. kind of putting into place the potential benefit of this activity versus the risk or the burden of doing it. So some things may be helpful, but the burden may be too great or the risk may be too high. And then they also grade the evidence. Uh, High-quality evidence is multiple randomized controlled trials uh, that have minimal limitations. Uh, Low-quality evidence is more case series or experts' opinions. So looking at the early part, the preoperative area, Uh, There are certain things we look at, such as patient assessment, nutrition, and we'll go through some of these things. We all risk assess our patients. Uh, Sometimes it's the eyeball test. You look at Mrs. Jones kind of coming in a wheelchair. She's got a list this long of medical problems, and you know that she's at high risk uh, for problems. Uh, The college has produced a risk calculator, uh, which can give you some numbers, occasionally quote the patients. We like to optimize our patients, uh, improve their medical conditions. Uh, certainly smoking sensation, if you can do it a few weeks ahead of time, is helpful. Increase their exercise tolerance. And the college has put together uh, the Strong for Surgery program for the University of Washington, which has a lot of these benefits incorporated. Uh, at our institution, we have a kind of a pre-op optimization clinic, which we can use, uh, where they'll take the patient optimizer medicines, uh, do some of these activities, uh, and hopefully get them in better shape for surgery if it's elective. Education is important. We need to set expectations. It reduces the patient's stress and encourages their participation in the things we'd like them to do. But it's important that we do this at an appropriate literacy level. Um, At Vanderbilt, we have a wide spectrum of patients, and so we try and guide uh, what we're telling them so that they understand. As colorectal surgeons, stomas have been a real issue with us. Uh, In the old days, patients in the hospital several days, and in the hospital post-op a week or so and so the stoma therapy nurses had time to work with them and understand about stomas with our reduced hospital stays this is really a challenge and so there are some uh, areas where the nurses can meet with the patients before surgery and give them some education and there's some new online uh, things that are very helpful. We also have to get informed consent Um, and the question is who does these things and where is it done as we're going to more outpatient activities, more of these things are shifted to your office and your office personnel, uh, and less from the hospital. So in many cases, we're taking on the burdens that hospitals used to do, and certainly uh, the reimbursement has not kept up with this, and it can be challenging. We all know nutritional assessment is important. Studies have shown that two out of three patients uh, who have GI surgery uh, have some issues with nutrition, and those that have issues have a three times more risk of having complications and a much higher chance of dying. Unfortunately, one in five hospitals have nutritional support programs. Therefore, only one of five patients sometimes evolve with this. Uh, Studies have shown that every dollar you spend on this nutritional assessment and things uh, saves about $50 in, in complications. And if you poll surgeons, the majority of us think that nutritional assessment is important. One of the ways you can assess your patients is this preoperative nutrition scale, uh, look at the BMI, if it's low, uh, if the patient's had a 10% loss in their weight unplanned in the previous six months, or they're eating 50% or less of their diet. If any of these things is yes, or their albumin is less than three, they'd probably benefit from nutritional assessment and, and some support. A number of the enhanced protocols use a preoperative carbohydrate drink. Uh, this certainly can reduce insulin response, uh, reduces stress. There are a number of products available. You look at the literature, the maltodextran seems to be important in being the most effective. Uh, but these things have been challenging to implement. Do you hand the patient a couple bottles from your office when you see them? Do you try and get it shipped to their home? you tell them to go buy some and all those things? Uh, these things are costly sometimes, not always available. Uh, and it's been a to implement this widespread. Uh, I've had a long interest in bowel preparation from when I was a resident. Uh, We have certain options, mechanical cleansing, antibiotics. Uh, There are a number of studies and experience, a few consensus statements, but practice patterns are very variable and to date there's no mechanical prep that has FDA approval as a preoperative prep. Now some of this has to do with the economics of uh, the company wants to get their product approved for colonoscopy and then therefore it's approved it can be used. Uh, but again, they look at the endpoint of cleansing the colon, necessarily poses some of the things we're going to look at uh, surgical site infections and abscesses and things. As uh, the options are cathartics, lavage, small, or large volume, or do nothing. Uh, and the antibiotics are both enteral, parental. Uh, but there's a the variability in drug selection, timing, duration. Uh, and these days, with, with skip things, you really can't get to the OR with some type of antibiotic for a bowel case. Now, if you look at mechanical cleansing, Uh, It does make the bowel easier to manipulate when you're working on it, especially laparoscopically or robotically. A clean colon makes it much easier to pass a stapler into the bowel lumen. If you have to do interoperative colonoscopy, uh, it's pretty important that the colon is clean. Otherwise, uh, you won't be able to do that. The question, though, is does clean the bowel reduce morbidity? And mostly that's surgical site infections. Uh, If you look at the literature, surgical site infections range from 5 to 23% in the kind of cases we do with an average of 11%. So it, it is a high-risk issue. As I said, these are the options we have to clean the colon out. Uh, when I was an intern, we had people you know, take liquids for days and take laxatives. The advent of, of the lavage preps uh, allowed us to kind of clean people out much quicker, uh, save time, and get a better result. Initially, we had the isoosmotic 4-liter preps. More recently, we have some smaller volume hypertonic preps. This is one of the earlier studies I did as a resident and uh, so you can do prospective clinical trials as residents. Uh, we had 60 patients going to elective colon surgery. We randomized them to either lavage or days of cathartics. They got IV safoxidine. Uh The people who got lavage had very clean colons. The people with laxatives had less clean colons. Uh, lavage patients had less weight loss because they weren't starving for three days and it was tolerated better. Uh, no difference in stool cultures, but our endpoint was cleansing, which may not necessarily correlate to SSIs. So um, that's one of the challenges, and that's why we couldn't do it with, with 60 patients. If we're looking at SSIs, we need a much larger group, a uh, much more expensive study, much harder to do. And then there was a kind of a move to, well, maybe bowel prep isn't necessary. Uh, some of this came from trauma literature and other activities, and so there were 18 randomized trials comparing no bowel prep to a bowel prep. Uh, And they found out there was really no difference in anastomotic leak or wound infections. Now there's limitations in many of these studies. Uh, There were a heterogeneous group of patients. There were some right colons. There were some low anteriors, you know, different mixes of those. Uh, These patients were preselected for those not needing interoperative colonoscopy. Uh, Some patients got distal rectal washout, removing some of the distal stool. And they almost all got intravenous antibiotics. And the the oral antibiotics were, were really variable and not necessarily done. And so there was a swing to maybe we don't need bowel preps, and then some large databases became available. And the group in Michigan looked at the uh, Michigan Surgical Quality Collaborative, a bunch of cases in their Michigan database. They retrospectively looked at patients that had mechanical bowel prep with oral antibiotics to those that had no prep. Uh, and about 2,000 cases, and what they found was that the people that got the mechanical bowel prep and the oral antibiotics. Uh, had less organ space infections, less SSIs uh, and, and lower incidences of C. difficile and so now depending on swinging back to Maybe we a lot of bowel prep with oral antibiotics. Another NISQIP study using the NISQIP database of 5,000 cases again looked at mechanical bowel prep oral antibiotics, mechanical bowel prep alone, very few people with oral antibiotics alone and some people with no bowel prep. And again, what they found was that the SSIs were lower in mechanical bioprep and oral antibiotics uh, and hospital remission rate was less. And so now there's a pendulum to swing back to maybe mechanical prep plus oral antibiotics. Uh, but it's, it's a very complicated issue. A lot of other factors involved in this type of cases that are done, these are retrospective studies, and so there's all kinds of biases in place. So we don't have good data or great answers. Uh, to try and do this. Uh, there was a meta-analysis of, again, seven randomized controlled tiles, 700 patients. Uh, and basically, again, it kind of confirmed that it seems to be mechanical biopsy oral antibiotics is probably the best option in, in most patients. Um, but again, it's still up for discussion. Now what are surgeons actually doing? These are a number of series. Some of these I did over the years. Um, Doing surveys. And obviously, surveys have problems. There's a response bias, and a bunch of other issues. But you do get some idea of what's going on. Back in the 90s, pretty much everybody was doing mechanical bio prep, and a lot of people doing oral antibiotics and large center parental antibiotics. Uh, and then we swung back to kind of less mechanical bio preps. There's not been any recent surveys done, but I suspect it swung back to people using mechanical bio prep plus oral antibiotics. Now, we do the antibiotics for a couple of reasons. We want to reduce bacterial counts in the colon. We like antibiotic levels in tissue, and hopefully, this will reduce infections. And again, you can use oral or perennial. It's important to pick the appropriate antibiotic that has a spectrum for aerobics, mostly E. coli, anaerobics, bacteroides, as you know. But timing is important. If you give oral antibiotics too close to mechanical bowel prep, they'll be swept out and not absorbed. Uh, Certain oral antibiotics are absorbed, some stay luminal, and what's the duration of those antibiotics. Um, And there's also some downsized antibiotics as far as uh, cost uh, and the nuisance to the patient. And there was some question about if you give a lot of antibiotics, are you going to increase the amount of C. difficile we're going to see? This is other thing that's underappreciated is the cost of some of these things we do. Uh, The PEG lavage is is relatively cheap, but newer preps are much more expensive. Uh, There's some tablet forms now. Antibiotics Oral antibiotics are relatively inexpensive, uh, but IV antibiotics can be expensive. And so all these things kind of go into what happens. Most of the studies show that if you use the appropriate antibiotic at the appropriate duration, the incidence of C. diff is low. And so that's not an issue. Uh, The main problem is if you use antibiotics for the longer term. And, and so what do we recommend? Uh, NIH review in 2018, they said, well, the data is pretty poor, so we're not going to make any recommendation. Uh, our society in 2019 said we probably ought to do mechanical with oral antibiotics for most patients, uh, strong evidence with moderate evidence, and then certainly everybody was going to get IV antibiotics. Uh, coloproctology review in 2020, they said, well, you probably ought to do mechanical and oral, but which ones you do is up to you. Uh, and so it comes down to clinical judgment, experience, and I suspect most of us are using mechanical bowel prep for, for selected patients with oral antibiotics. <clears throat> the most common regimen used is neomycin and metronidazole, and it's given one, two, and seven hours after the mechanical prep. And so, unlike the colonoscopy preps where you sometimes give a dose the afternoon before and the morning of, we want to get this done the day before so you have time for the antibiotics to work and then almost all of us use intravenous antibiotics second or third generation cephalosporin uh, in holding and if it's an extended length one one dose may be sufficient and so our current recommendation is uh, we probably mechanically bowel prep most patients oral antibiotics most patients and certainly all patients are going to get IV antibiotics second or third generation cephalosporin now what adjunctive medications can we use a number of things have been proposed, non-steroidals, acetaminophen, the uh, and most of these are incorporated into a multimodality analgesia, we'll talk about. We're also important to work on nausea and vomiting because that tends to keep people in the hospital uh, and certainly reduces patient satisfaction. Now, how do you assess patients that are higher risk for nausea and vomiting? A few risk factors have been identified. Uh, female patients, non-smokers, if they've had nausea vomiting with previous operations <clears throat> or you plan on giving them PO opioids which kind of means most of our patients. Uh, if any one of these things is positive it, it adds to the the instance of will this patient experience significant post-operative nausea? It goes from 20 to 80 percent depending on how many of those factors you have. <clears throat> now and so you can either be proactive which do things ahead of time to prevent the nausea and vomiting or be reactive, do things when it occurs. Obviously most of us prefer the proactive approach. Um, and so things that have been recommended are a dose of dexamethasone in the preoperative area, uh, some anti-nausea medicine, total intravenous anesthesia has some benefit and again, a pet is also going to have some benefit. Switching now to interoperative, uh, there are a number of things that we can do to make our patients less stressful during the operation and we'll go through several of those. <clears throat> Normothermia is a good thing. Uh, we try and keep our patients between 36 and 38 degrees. Both low temperature and high temperature are bad. Uh, fortunately, hypertension is very rare, and there's a whole bunch of cascaded of things. Anesthesia does if that happens. Uh, but hypothermia is pretty common. And you know it caused a number of things. You can have cardiac arrhythmias, infection, aspiration, bleeding, which we worry about, and these other things. I've never seen a frostbite, but I guess it's a potential if they got too cold. Uh, and kind of fixing this is kind of a team effort. Uh, the ner- interoperative nurses have to be involved. Anesthesia has to be involved. And basically, you want to limit the exposure of skin and the viscera, and you want to heat everything, uh, the environment, air, fluid. Uh, These forced air warmers are very helpful in keeping the patients covered. And so if if you make this a priority, it's pretty reasonable to accomplish. Another area of controversy is how much fluid to give the patients. Uh, There are a whole number of studies about this. I think we all agree that too little fluid and too much fluid are both bad. The question is, what's the sweet spot in the middle there? You have to remember that preoperative and postoperative fluids have a role Uh, If the holding nurse kind of dumps in two liters of fluid, and the post-operative nurse dumps in a couple more liters of fluid, now the patient's four liters up, despite all your efforts interoperatively. So you have to get them involved. Interoperatively, people have used things like the weight of the patient, which to me is kind of cumbersome because if my resident leans on the patient, it's going to juggle the scales. Uh, A lot of times they use physiologic measures. stroke rate, uh, heart rate, you know, things like that, CVP. Uh, they're a little more invasive, but there are some non-invasive methods that people are using. And then post postoperatively, it's important to kind of get the fluids uh, reduced down and kind of stop them as soon as possible so that people don't get more fluid than they need. <clears throat> Interesting, years ago, I was a visiting professor in, in Lithuania. And we went by in rounds with a, a surgeon who was hosting us in the morning, and we saw his post-operative patients, and none of them had IVs. I go, what, you know, how do you do this? He goes, well, we have very few nurses here. So when the evening shift goes off thing, they take all the IVs out, heparin lock them, and the patient goes to bed. There's no monitors, no beeping, nobody wakes them up. They come in the morning, they plug the IVs back in. And so... Pretty interesting approach, it, it actually when you think about it, it's kind of physiologic, most of us don't drink while we're sleeping, so it's something to think about. But it's hard to implement. Wounds, uh, we all agree that all things, other things be equal, smaller is probably better. And so there's been a real move to mentally invasive surgery. Uh, and we've also had a lot of surgical bundles posted the problem of wound infections. <clears throat> all of us remember when uh, NISQIP came in. We all got these terrible numbers, and we kind of threw everything against it to kind of reduce the infection. And, and most of the time, we were successful reducing the infection by doing a bunch of things. But again, we're not sure which of those many things we did had the most effect. Uh, the bundles did reduce infections, but again, how important each component is or if the component's unrelated is it, still being worked out. There's been a real shift in drains. Again, when I was a junior resident, everybody got all kinds of drains and G-tubes. I remember doing gallbladders. And the first time we did a gallbladder without an NG tube, the chief resident said, this patient's gonna die. And it turned out he didn't, and the patient did fine. Uh, So we really avoid nasogastric tubes unless the patient's vomiting. Uh, I think oral gastric decompression is important, especially if the patient has a prolonged uh, bagging before surgery. Uh, empty out their stomach. <clears throat> we avoid abdominal drains. Certainly most of the randomized controlled trials and men have shown no benefit from abdominal drains. Uh, the exception might be the bloody pelvis or an ongoing leak. We've gotten very good at getting ureter catheters out in the first 24 hours for most procedures with the exception of those with a vesicle, vesicle fistula or sometimes some low uh, colorectal procedures, but even those can get out in 24 to 48 hours. <clears throat> Again, our, our society felt this was a strong recommendation with moderate evidence. Pain management is also really important to surgeons, um, and we're going to talk a bit about that. Most of us have gone now to multimodality, uh, some kind of pain management. We use multiple drugs that work at different levels of the body, usually, it's two of these to try and get good results. A little bit more complicated slide shows that this kind of the different drugs can be used, uh, some local things, and then also occasionally in some patients, uh, epidurals and things like that. What you pick will depend on what's available at your institution. and Many times uh, that may not be totally in your control. Uh, when I was at Ochsner, we had very few epidurals. Vanderbilt seems to like them, so we kind of work with people. And I don't think it matters it's quite as much as exactly what you do uh, as opposed to that you do something and it's kind of on your radar. Again this is a team effort. Uh, you can have the best plan and then the pack nurse gives the patient a big loss of, of Dilaudid because she's in pain and all of a sudden it ruins your whole thing of reducing narcotics. So you need to kind of get them involved along with the trainees and again the components may vary. Uh, you need to figure out what's available at your institution and then maybe be somewhat selective what type of case it is. <clears throat> ambulation is important. Uh, we're, we're kind of designed to be moving. And most studies have shown that if ambulate patients uh, early and progressive, there's shorter hospital stay. What's challenging is what does ambulation mean? Does it mean standing at the bedside once a day, or does it mean walking down a hallway? And so, uh, again, these areas that need helpful. Uh, again, strong recommendation, but, but real poor quality evidence. We've certainly seen a big advance in, in oral feeding. Uh, it does accelerate GI function, reduces hospital stay, and decreases morbidity and mortality. Um, and so we most people now will tend to give patients liquids uh, as soon as they wake up. <clears throat> I used to stress to the residents on rounds that I'd tell the patient, you know, drink what you feel like drinking. Uh, if you, you know, with the idea that they drank too much, it was because they drank too much, and that's why they got threw up. It wasn't me. So, uh, but again, it, it does seem to be helpful. Uh, and certainly, pacing entirely is better and does move things along better. <clears throat> One of the final things we're going to talk about is discharge criteria. Uh, to be able to go home, you have to have oral intake. <laughs> you have to have lower GI function, which most commonly is usually designed now is, is passive flatus good pain control. You can mobilize, and you have a situation where you can either care for yourself or have people assisting you, and you've had no complications. Obtaining some of these things is challenging. We've all had the case of Mrs. Jones, who's ready to go home, but there's no one at home there, so she's got to wait till her brother comes to stay with her, or they can't get a ride. So a lot of these things can be handled by pre-optive education, explain to the patient when you expect them to go home, and they can make some arrangements. So these are things we've covered, uh, preoperative, interoperative, and postoperative. Again, a a lot of changes, uh, not quite as much data as we would like. I'd encourage all of you to examine your practice, uh, make some changes based on evidence that's available, your experience, and some common sense, Uh, what's doable in your institution. We have a lot of unanswered questions. There's certainly a lot of topics for younger researchers to answer some of these questions. Uh, and provide us with some more information. I'd again like to honor Dr. Upcarian for all he's contributed to our society. It's certainly been a great privilege to give this lecture, and I appreciate your attendance. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag HouseOfSurgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.